Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Remember, the whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming. And so as we have gotten to chapter 6, the seals are, have been opened. Uh, the first six seals have been opened. We are seeing Jesus moving in on that which is rightfully his. He is moving to take that which is rightfully his. But as we begin here in chapter 7, I think it's important that we remember what we've already learned up to this point. We studied the book of Daniel first, and then we studied uh, some passages in Ezekiel, 30, I believe 35 uh, through 39. Um, and we learned there about the invasion of this king named Gog, this ruler named Gog, who's going to invade Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And Ezekiel 39 verse 29 states that at the end of that miracle where God rescues the nation of Israel from this invasion, God will begin to pour out his spirit upon specifically the house of Israel. That is a very different statement than the one that Peter made on the day that the church was born. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Peter says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass that in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And that's what we're experiencing right now. There, we come from all different ethnic backgrounds. Some of you may have a Jewish background. Some of you, most of us probably have a Gentile background. And, and God has poured out his spirit upon us. We are, we are experiencing what, uh, what Peter talked about in Acts 2 in the church. But as we move into the book of Revelation, the church has been raptured, and we see that the world is now killing those who have turned to Christ during the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And, and if that continues, if this type of thing continues, believers will become extinct if God does not supernaturally protect some of them. And so when you put Ezekiel 39, 29, where it says he's going to pour out his, begin pouring out his spirit upon Israel, and you put that together with Revelation 7, we understand that God marks these 144,000 Jewish individuals to be his protected witnesses during this awful time of, of God's judgment. And it results in the greatest revival the world has ever seen. So, Revelation chapter 7, let's begin in verse 1. Revelation verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying... Do not hurt the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So we start here in verse 1 where it says, after these things, and after these things, what things? The things of chapter 6, the opening of the first six seals. Now, since we haven't opened the seventh seal yet, chronology implies, therefore, that these angels are the ones who will bring about the next stage of the Great Tribulation when the seventh seal is opened. So we're going to see the seventh seal open in chapter 8. So something, they're getting ready to do something, but we're going to see in a second, the Lord says, not yet. We'll see what they're going to do in chapter 8. So after these things, I saw these four angels who have been appointed to be a part of the seventh seal judgment. It says that they are standing on the four corners of the earth. They have taken their stand there, which means that God has positioned them to be a part of this seventh seal judgment. However, 
before we get to why they don't enact it yet, it mentions where they are standing. They are standing on the four corners of the earth. Now, that phrase, the four corners of the earth, has been fodder for lots of critics of the Bible to say, oh, see, you can't trust the Bible. The Bible's an ancient document that you know, only explained things in terms of its times. It's not an inspired document because, obviously, the four corners of the earth explains that they believe the earth was flat back then. And while I realize that the flat earth idea has gotten traction lately, the Bible never states a belief in a flat earth. Um, we still use this common phrase today to describe the most distant parts of the earth when we say the four corners of the earth. For example, many businesses, they will say, we have offices in all four corners of the earth. You have our own military, which says we have a presence in all four corners of the world. I don't believe that our military believes in a flat earth, nor do I believe that most of these businesses believe in a flat earth. It's a figure of speech. And this figure of speech is explaining that these angels here are in the distant parts of all the earth. So the question is, of course, well, what does the Bible say about the shape of the earth? Well, you need to understand something. The Bible never comments explicitly or directly on the shape of our planet. There is no instance where, you know, Isaiah's standing there and, you know, an angel comes and visits him and he goes, hey, I've always wondered about the, what's the shape of the earth is. And he goes, well, it's round, dummy. You know, it, there's no experience like that that happens in the Scripture. However, while the Bible doesn't propose to teach the, about the physical design of the earth explicitly at any point, um, it does confirm a round earth implicitly in various places. For example, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 9 in the creation account, it describes all land existing in one place and all water existing, all the bodies of water existing in one place. That can only happen in a sphere. That's not possible on a flat earth. Isaiah 40 verse 22 uses a word that implies a round shape when it describes the boundaries of our atmosphere, okay? So the, again, where it doesn't just come out and say, hey, you know, Christians or, you know, Israel, you want to know what's, what the earth is shaped like? Let me tell you. However, there are things that it states that require you to have a spherical planet, okay? So, you don't need to be a flat earther, you know, to believe the Bible, nor does it mean that the Bible teaches a flat earth and therefore the Bible's not true. Neither of those things are true. So it says here that these angels who are in the, all these distant parts of the earth, it mentions they're holding the four winds of the earth. Now, the phrase here holding means that they have control or have power over the four winds of the earth. The fact that they are standing there, that they had taken a stand there, means that these angels are not always in charge of the four winds of the earth, but they are specifically given, are specifically given control of the four winds of the earth for the purpose of this seal judgment that's coming. Now, when it mentions that they're holding or have power over the four winds of the earth, it mentions that they should not blow. Why do they have power? That the wind should not blow yet is the, the uh, implication there, that eventually they're going to let go and it is going to blow on the earth, on the sea, and on, on the trees of the earth. So what are these four winds that they are controlling? Well, both the word blow and winds, they speak of rapid air movement. And what's interesting is when the seventh seal is opened, we probably mostly think of the fact that seven angels with trumpets come forth to announce seven new judgments from God. However, something else happens in addition to that. Verse 5 of chapter 8 shows us. 
It says, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were voices, which just means noises, and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. So something does happen besides just these seven angels with seven trumpets coming forth. There is actually a cataclysmic judgment, a climate instance that occurs here in the, uh, the Great Tribulation when the seventh seal is opened. So the question is, are these things that happen, are these winds destructive storm fronts that are occurring at, at the same time all over the planet? I lean in that direction. I don't know for sure, but it does sound like that's what's going on. Um, when I, we've been through hurricanes here in Florida, and that describes a lot of what I've experienced, a lot of noise. That was the thing that probably blew me away the most, the most when the hurricane, hurricane Charlie came over us, as we're huddled in our hallway with mattresses on both sides, because we've never gone through that before, you know, and, and you're hearing just these eerie sounds outside. And the reason you're hearing them is because like trees were ring, being ripped out and, uh, you know, all sorts of things were happening. I had a plastic chair, like one of those chairs you just have out, out front on the porch, just a plastic chair that was sitting out there that we would use to sit out there. We'd take it to baseball games with the kids. That thing got wrapped around the basketball hoop, the entire plastic chair. So you're hearing all these noises. I mean, so could it be like hurricanes all the earth? Sure, could be. I don't know for sure, but it does seem to describe these types of climate, uh, clim uh, climate events uh, or, or co uh, climate catastrophes. Uh, it does seem to describe something like that. It is possible that winds is, is just speaking of judgment here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 describes the, uh, Jeremiah describes a judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem uh, when the Babylonians are, are going to attack. And he uses wind metaphorically here. Uh, in verses 11 through 13, he says, And at that time shall it be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the high places in the desert toward the daughter of my people. I'm not sending it to fan nor to cleanse. Even a full wind from those places shall come unto me. Now also will I give sentence against them. It's a judgment. Behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariots shall be as a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles, referring to the Babylonian army. Woe unto us, Jeremiah says, for we are going to be plundered. We're going to be spoiled. So that's just one example of many in the Old Testament where wind was a symbol used to describe any kind of judgment from God. So it's possible that that's what it's just describing. They're holding back judgment. Uh, but I lean in the direction of actual climate catastrophe. Um, you don't have to agree with me. It's okay. Either way, the point is clear. God has set these angels to unleash some kind of judgment on the world that will occur when the seventh seal is opened. But the reason it doesn't happen in chapter 7 is because they aren't allowed to do anything just yet. Why? Verse 2, we see. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, and this one is not holding wind back or anything, but he has the seal of the living God. Why? Well, he cries with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and to the sea, saying, don't hurt the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, a seal was a mark of a signet of ownership or authority. Sometimes it would be in a ring. Sometimes it would be in, in like a clay tablet that they would bring out, you know, an ornate clay tablet. Sometimes it would be at the end of the king's scepter or the, the individual in charge's scepter. But the point is, is that this is how they would mark their ownership or show their authority to some type of document. And so this is the same thing that was used to seal the scroll. Remember when Ezekiel saw the scroll that Jesus takes, when he saw it in Ezekiel chapter 2, it was opened. 
But it wasn't time for God's plan to be enacted yet, so God sealed it. He closed it away, closed it up, and now Jesus is breaking those seals because he has the authority to do so. He is worthy to do so. So this same seal that's to show God's ownership and God's authority, it says it is being brought to seal these servants. Now, what I love here is it describes it as having the seal of the living God. This is not the seal of some carved piece of wood or some metal figurine in the shape of a deity who doesn't exist. Our God is alive. You know, he's real. Never forget that. He's real. He's alive. Now, just like this scroll needed to be sealed away because, and closed off because the timing wasn't yet, something else needs to be marked because it's not okay for anything to happen to them yet. And so in verse 3, he explains to these angels that are going to bring about the seventh seal judgment, don't hurt the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Now, when the seventh seal is opened, these seven trumpet judgments that emerge, they affect the earth, the sea, and the trees. So that's why I say these guys are definitely seventh seal angels here. And, and he's saying, no, we can't go to the seventh seal yet. Something needs to be done. We, God wants to put his mark on his servants in their foreheads. Now, God has marked believers before this way in the Bible. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, uh, before Nebuchadnezzar comes to do what Jeremiah predicted in Jeremiah chapter 4 to conquer Jerusalem. Uh, conquer Jerusalem. In Ezekiel four, uh, chapter uh, 9, verses 4 and 5, Ezekiel is given a vision by the Lord where he marks the faithful so that they will not be harmed during that invasion. Ezekiel 9, 4, it says, And the Lord said unto him, this is one of the angels that Ezekiel's watching come to Jerusalem, he tells the angel, the Lord says to the angel, go through the midst of the city, Jerusalem, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of all the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst of it. In other words, there were people in Jerusalem who were seeing all the idolatry, all the evil, all the sin, and they were crying out to God going, God, please rescue us. Please send revival. Lord, please bring about change. This is awful. And they were crying out to the Lord, and their hearts broke because of these things that they saw. It says that the Lord told, tells this angel, go and put my seal on their foreheads. Mark them so that they will not be harmed. And then in verse 5 of Ezekiel 9, he turns to the other angels here who are the angels of judgment, and to the others the Lord said, in my hearing, Ezekiel overhears this, go you after him through this first angel who seals him, who seals the ones to be protected, go after him through the city and smite, and do not let your eyes spare, neither have pity, slay utterly old and young, maids, everybody who does not have this mark. So we have seen the Lord do this before. In addition to that, while we are not marked by an angel in our foreheads, the Bible teaches that all Christians are sealed or marked with the Holy Spirit. We sang about that. I didn't know that was in that song this morning before this sermon was, was being prepared. And, uh, and so it's cool how the Lord works that out. But in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 15, the Bible tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 13, it says, referring to Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, and then explains what that is, the gospel of your salvation. So you heard the gospel of, of your salvation, you believe that gospel of salvation, the word of truth, and you put your faith in Christ, right? The Bible says that when you did that, it says in verse 13, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. 
So when we got saved, the Holy Spirit came and began to live inside of us, and we were marked as belonging to the Lord, right? We belong to Him. And he explains why. He is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. So the Lord says, I want you to know that I'm serious here. I want you to know that I'm going to finish the work I've started in you. I don't want you to feel left alone. I want you to feel abandoned. Remember when Jesus, he was going to die, he was going to go to the cross, and so he tells his disciples, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will send a comforter, right? A comforter just like me, and he will always be with you. So that's what the Holy Spirit is for us. It is God's earnest. You know what the earnest is? It was a, like a down payment. It was like the, the engagement ring that was given. You know, it was, it was like the dowry that was given to show that I will follow through on what I've promised. And so he is the earnest of our inheritance. I've promised an inheritance. He's the earnest. He's that down payment. He's that guarantee that I will finish what I started, that I will do what I said I will do. It was interesting, me and Bev were having a conversation uh, last night, and she mentioned that she was speaking to a young lady, and uh, the young lady, you know, was concerned about finances, and she says, you know, I don't understand why everybody makes such a big deal about why the guy needs to go out and get a ring, you know, an engagement ring, get a nice ring. Why can't he just get one of the, you know, one of the fake, you know, pieces of jewelry, whatever, it looks the same. And, and, you know, Bev was explaining why it is important, because it's important to show that he means this that he is invested in this, that there's a cost that was paid. It's not about getting the big fancy ring. I mean, it's nice, but it's not about that. So if you are a, a single lady today and you're in the hearing of my voice and a wonderful, suave gentleman comes to you and sweeps you off your feet and offers you a candy wrapper ring, you say to him, boys give candy wrapper rings Men give engagement rings because what he is doing is showing what he's willing to pay for you. What he is doing is he's showing what cost he's willing to give up for you because what is the chief command that God gives to husbands? It is to lay down your lives like Jesus does for the church. So, that's why it's important. It's not about the money. It's about the cost. It's about the investment. It's about the commitment. Because if he's not willing to do that, I can guarantee you he's not willing to put you first in anything else. There's nothing wrong with waiting. There's nothing wrong with saving. There's no rush. That wasn't in my notes. Where am I? <laughs> Oh, sealed with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Jesus gave everything for us. He proved that he loved us in that way. You know, in John, oh, I already mentioned, John 14, 16, he, sealed, he, he said, I'm not gonna leave you alone. He sent the Holy Spirit. You know, we've been sealed as well. So this is not a new idea that he would seal someone with a mark in their foreheads. We don't have that, but we have the Holy Spirit who is our, our seal. Now, I bring this up because when we often talk about being, uh, seeing a mark, when we talk about biblical things and we talk about the end times, we talk about being marked, what do we normally think of? The mark of the beast, right? That's what everybody talks about, the mark of the beast, mark of the beast, mark of the beast. And, and I almost wonder if the Lord's not up there like going, the whole marking thing is my idea. He's just a really bad copycat. 
Satan is not original. He doesn't have the ability, the power to create. So everything he does is just a perversion of something that's real and good. He doesn't have power to create things. He doesn't have power to save. So the mark of the beast is just his lesser copycat version of God's genuine mark of love. Satan's mark may convey his ownership, but offers no commitment and no care. None. In Romans 8, 35 to 37, it tells us what God has marked us with and the value of his mark. In Romans 8, 35, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or even sword, even our lives being taken, can that separate us from the love of God? What's the answer? No, no. Because even, even when God spends our lives to bring others into his kingdom, he brings us to his side to enjoy the blessings of that kingdom. He does not cast us aside. He does not use us. We are not just cannon fodder. The enemy simply spends lives and then tosses them to the side. Now, who are these servants that are marked with God's protection? Well, in chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 4, it tells us, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000, and then it tells us who? Of all the tribes, or from out of, all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, from out of all the tribes, because all the tribes are not mentioned here. If you've read this before, you know they're not all mentioned here. Twelve tribes are mentioned, but there are, you may not have known this, there are more than twelve tribes in Israel. Remember when Jacob was dying, and he brought Joseph in, and he gave him the double blessing. And he said to him, your two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, those are the only two kids that Joseph had at the time. He'll later have more sons. But at that time, he only had two boys. And those two boys were brought into um, Jacob, and Jacob elevated them to son status. They were no longer his grandkids. They were legally elevated to son status because Joseph got the double blessing. And so he says, when you guys go back into the land, they will get an equal portion as all my other sons. So Manasseh and Ephraim are not grandsons in the legal sense. They are actual sons of Jacob, and therefore they became tribes of Israel. Now we know that Jacob had 12 sons, so when you get that, you get 14 tribes, actually, okay? Now, when we look at all of that, Joseph tends to get swallowed up in the tribe of Ephraim, uh, so he's not usually mentioned. But the other reason, you say, well, I thought there was only 12 divisions of land. You're right. The Levites are not usually thought of as one of the tribes because the Levites were given to the Lord. Originally, the Lord said, every firstborn will be dedicated to serving me. Your firstborn son will always be dedicated to serving me. Later on, the Lord said, I will take all the tribe of Levi. And so, and the reason the Lord did that, it's a long story, but the idea was Levi remained faithful during the golden calf experience when so many others were not. And they, when, when Moses said, who's on the Lord's side, the tribe of Levi said, we are. And so the Lord said, because of that faithfulness, they will serve me. So Levi didn't get a land inheritance in the same way that all the other tribes did. So they're not usually mentioned as one of the 12. And like I said, Joseph's tribe is not usually mentioned. It's only mentioned on rare occasions because they received their land inheritance with the tribe of Ephraim. So that's why we say 12, even though there's technically 14. Now, what is interesting about this list here, let's read through it. 
It says, and of the tribe of Judah, verse 5, were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. And of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. And of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. So you may have noticed that Dan and Ephraim are left out. They're not mentioned here. So the question is, why are Dan and Ephraim left out, and why are Joseph and Levi listed here? Well, it is possible that Joseph's name is used simply for Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest of the two tribes that came from Joseph. That may be the case. But you can't say that for Dan and Levi. Why are Dan and Levi switched out here? Why is it Levi and not Dan? Well, Irenaeus, who was the senior pastor of the church in Lyon, France, around the end of the second century, in 180 AD, he said that, he taught that Jeremiah 8.16, which is a prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar invading from the, the land of Dan in the north, that he, that, that was a, actually had a dual fulfillment. That prophecy was fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar, but it had a dual fulfillment in predicting that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. And so he explains that's why Dan is left out and why he's not on this list. That idea was perpetuated by Irenaeus' disciple, Hippolytus, who became a, a very influential pastor at the church in Rome during the third century. And that teaching then from Rome caught on with other influential church, early church pastors like uh, Origen, Jerome, Chrysostom, and of course, one of the most famous, Augustine. Uh, because of that, you can still hear this idea taught today that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And while I understand Irenaeus' reasoning, I do believe it is very dangerous to find symbols in Scripture when there's no clear statement of Scripture to back up that symbol. Because when we lack that clear statement from Scripture, our conclusions are entirely guesswork. They're entirely guesswork. And when your conclusion is entirely guesswork when it concerns symbols, who becomes the authority for who's right? Well, you and me. The Scriptures are no longer the authority because we have no clear statement to justify the symbol. So, for example, when we say something like uh, the idea that the birds in, you know, the parables that Jesus tells represent evil, um, the reason we can do that is because we have so many other images where God says, and the birds are something evil, you know? So we have a reason to believe that that symbol refers to that in that way. You know, we have a reason to say that when we see the word seed in a parable, that it refers to the word of God, because Jesus tells us in one parable, in his explanation, that the seed is the word of God. But we don't have any clear scripture that says that the Antichrist comes from Dan. In contrast to that, we actually have clear scripture in other places that tells us the Antichrist comes from somewhere else. So guesswork is something we don't even need to do when the Bible clearly identifies something for us. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it declares clearly that the Antichrist will be from the people groups of the Roman Empire. It says, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy Jerusalem. Referring to the prince that shall come, it's referring to the Antichrist. Because then in verse 27, it says, and he, who, the prince that shall come, shall confirm a covenant with Israel for seven years. So we know that he comes from Rome. In addition to that, in Daniel chapter 17, verse 10, Revelation clear out tells us that the Antichrist is one of the seven emperors of Rome. He is a Gentile. He is not an Israeli. He is not from the tribe of Dan. 
So that still leaves us then with the question, why is Dan left out? I don't know why Dan is left out, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But there are two things I can share with you, one negative and one positive. It is possible Dan was left out because, remember, when we talk about tribes, we are normally thinking of land inheritance. And what did Dan do with their land inheritance? Remember, they were given the western section of the central plateau of Israel. And who was in the valley of the western section on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea? The Philistines. And so when Dan was given their land, they didn't like their lot. And they went in there and they said, we don't want to fight the Philistines. And they literally, almost all of them, abandoned the inheritance God gave them. And they went all the way north to land God hadn't given Israel. And then they murdered an entire city that God didn't tell them to kill, didn't tell them to wipe out, and said, this is our inheritance. And we never find Dan in a place where they are submitted to the Lord. Dan was the the tribe that introduced idolatry to the nation of Israel, and it became the city of Dan became in the north there, became one of the sites of Jeroboam's golden calf idol after the ten northern tribes broke from King Rehoboam. That is also a possibility why Ephraim's not mentioned, because guess where the second golden calf idol was found? In the city of Bethel, in the tribe of Ephraim's land. So that's a possibility. I'm not saying I'm correct, it's just a thought. The second thought, though, I want to throw out there is whatever the reason is Dan's left out, Dan, the tribe of Dan, has a redemption story. Because even though they're left out here, Ezekiel 48 lists them as the first tribe to get their land inheritance in Christ's kingdom. Listen, no matter how much you failed the Lord, no matter how far you strayed, God's grace is there if you will turn around to come back. Amen? He can forgive, He can restore, and He can heal anyone who chooses to repent. So if you're away from the Lord right now, you can have a redemption story too. He loves you, and He has a plan for your life, and He's not done with you. Return and come back. Now, who are these 144,000 individuals? Well, the plain sense of this text is that it's 144,000 Israelis. They are marked by God for protection during this awful time of the Great Tribulation. However, many Bible teachers and many cults identify this group as that their group or the church uh, or some special group of believers in the church. I want to read to you a quote from the noted Lutheran scholar J.A. Seuss. He says, As I read the Bible, when God says, the children of Israel... I do not understand him to mean any but the people of Jewish blood, be they Christians or not. And when he speaks of the twelve tribes of the sons of Jacob and then gives the names of the tribes, it is impossible for me to believe that he means the Gentiles in any sense or degree, whether they be believers or not. I know of no instance in which the descendants of the twelve tribes of Israel include the Gentiles. That is such a powerful statement because it's right. When God is listing out these individual tribes here, by name, never does he have in mind, and, you know, Aaron's line gave birth to, you know, all these Gentiles. Never is that thought of. It's always thought of as the descendants, physical descendants of Israel, Jewish people. And so you have to ask the question, if John is speaking symbolically here, 
Why does he put all this detail? Why tell us of every tribe? It's not necessary to do that. Now, there's one other thought I want to give to you. Dr. Martichcock, the great end-time scholar, said this. He said, why would the Holy Spirit begin to mix the church in Israel in the book of Revelation, the final book of the New Testament, when he has so carefully distinguished the two groups, the church in Israel, in the previous 26 books of the New Testament? Why would he spend all this time separating the two out and saying, well, now we have Israel, and here's God's plan for them. You know, why, why would Jesus say things like, you know, your house is left to you desolate, your, your, the kingdoms are going to be given to another's. You know, why would Paul say, you know, now you know, Israel is in unbelief now, and, and so they were cut off, and you've been grafted in, and, and, but God's not done with them because of the gifts and calling of God without repentance, repentance. Why would he make it very clear? Why would all through the New Testament it be very clear that here's the church and here's Israel? Why would all of a sudden the Holy Spirit go, oh yeah, they're actually the same. Right at the end. He wouldn't. He wouldn't do that. It is out of context to identify this group as anyone but 144,000 people of Jewish descent. To do this, you have to do damage to the text. You have to rewrite the Bible. You have to create your own version of the Bible to do that. And this is why. Why is it important that we understand the Bible in context? Why is it important that we take the Bible literally? Listen, if you don't want to believe the Bible, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to condemn you for that, okay? That's not my job anyway. But if you're going to say, hey, I believe the Scriptures. I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe that because of what the Scriptures say. If we're going to have the Bible be our source of truth, if we're going to trust the Bible for our understanding of salvation, heaven, right, and wrong, if we're going to understand it that way and it's going to be the authority for those things, we cannot all of a sudden say that we're the authority in other things. What am I saying? I remember I had a discussion with somebody. I was teaching on the resurrection of Lazarus when Jesus, Lazarus dies, and three days later, Jesus calls him out of the tomb. And he was very upset with me because he said to me, he said, you know, it's a great sermon, but the problem is you missed the point. And I was like, what do you mean I missed the point? He said, well, this isn't about Lazarus being resurrected. This is about how Lazarus is a picture of us and how we are dead in trespasses and sins and we can't come out of the grave unless the Lord calls us to come out of the grave. I said, so you're telling me that the, like some symbol or some allegory that's told there is the real lesson of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's not about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And he said, yes. I said, well, what if I interpret the symbol differently? Like, like if I say, well, actually, I think the symbol means this, how do you know your symbol's right and my symbol's wrong? And he just looked at me. And he said, let me tell you why your way is bad. I said, because if the only way we know who's right and wrong is who's more convincing, or who has the better symbol, or who has more power to enforce their meaning? Who becomes the authority now? You or me. And that's a route we never want to go. I am not here in this spot because I'm better than you. And I have some direct revelation from God that you need to hear that you couldn't figure out on your own. That is not my job. I love what the Lord told Jeremiah when he called him to the ministry. He said, I have put my words in your mouth. Now go speak them. He didn't say, I have anointed your words about my words to be amazing. Now go tell people your words. 
The problem is, is that when we hear some preaching today, we kind of get that idea. Like, you know, you'll hear, and, and you'll, you'll sit there, and, and someone will say, you know, and Jesus said, you know, they'll start their sermon, they open to John chapter whatever, John 12, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And let me tell you, people, God wants you to come forth today. And they never return to John 11 or 12. They never go through the text. But they got a whole message about how God wants you to come forth. What they say might be okay, might even be true. But what have you got when you've left that day? The words of a man. And those things don't work when your marriage is failing, when your finances are a wreck, when your health is crumbling, when you've lost your job, when your, your kids aren't walking with the Lord, when, when you've got all these things that are going on in your life, you're not thinking, what did Pastor Will say the other day? What did Pastor Will say the other day? Oh, Lazarus, come forth. All right, I'm going to come forth, Lord. No, you need something where you go, I know that I know that I know that my God said he will not leave me or forsake me. I need to know that I know that I know that my sins are forgiven, that I'm a joint heir with Christ. I need to be able to know that I know that I know what Ephesians chapter 1 says, not what Pastor Will said about Ephesians chapter 1. So this is why taking the Bible in context, understanding it, you know, in its most simple way, is why it's so important. It's why we stress it here. I love what the great Harry Ironside said. He said, I don't have this quote here because none of this was part of my sermon. <laughs> Supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, like seven pages of notes, I'm on page two, and whatever's happening is happening. So I apologize in advance if it's all over the place. Um, Harry Ironside, he said, when the plain sense of Scripture makes perfect sense, seek no other sense lest you come up with nonsense. I don't want to pitch nonsense to you. So, it's out of context to identify these individuals as anyone but 144,000 Jewish descendants who have been specially protected by God. Now, one of my Bible, teach, Bible college teachers explained them, why are they being protected? Like, what, are they, what, what do they do? He explained them. He said, well, they're like 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. In other words, they are protected because God has called them to be evangelists on the earth during this time, in a time when believers in Christ are going to be killed in a large scale for their faith. And the reason he brought that up is not necessarily because it ever says that they will be evangelists, but it does, it's very interesting because their sealing in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, is followed immediately by verse 9, this. And I'm not going to go through, don't worry, I know it's late. I'm not going to go through all chapter 9, we are gonna, or all chapter 7. We are going to quit after this verse. But he says, and after this, so after the sealing of the, of the 144,000. So there is a chronology here. There is some correlation between what happens in verses 1 through 8 and now what's going to happen in verse 9. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and they had palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So we see this massive revival that occurs where an innumerable amount of people are in heaven. They're in heaven, and it seems to be directly connected and correlated to the sealing of these 144,000 144, Jewish individuals. So, is it 
the case that that's what they are? I don't know for sure. But I do know this for sure. Jesus predicted this revival in Matthew chapter 24. And so I want to I close with Matthew 24. And I am going to read 2 Corinthians 6 as well right as we pray at the end. But I want to close at Matthew 24 because I want to leave you with a thought that I'll be blunt with you. This is not something you're going to hear from a lot of good Bible, even people who are good Bible teachers. This is something I learned from Pastor Chuck. It's something I I've, normally hear other people say something different, but I believe this is important to understand the Scripture just as it is. Jesus was asked a question by the disciples, three in fact, on, on the Olivet Discourse, what we call his Olivet Sermon. One of them was, when is the end of the world? When is the end of the age, I should say? And so Jesus answers the question in Matthew 24, 4, and he says, take heed that no man deceive you, which means, by the way, a lot of folks are going to get this wrong. I'm just, I'm just being honest. Anytime the Bible says don't be deceived, it means because our normal tendency is we're going to miss it. We're going to mess it up. So take heed that no man deceive you. Why? For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you be not troubled. We should never be bothered by seeing these things. Why? For these things have to happen, but the end is not yet. In other words, that's not the end. Most of the time when people read Matthew 24, they're like, signs of the times, earthquakes, pestilence, this, that, the other thing. And so we have all websites designed to track how many earthquakes has happened this year. Well, there's 1.3 more percent earthquakes this year than last year. The end is getting close. I understand the nature and the good hardness. They're just longing for the Lord's return. That's good. But I would say that is an absolute waste of time. We don't need to track hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes. I don't need to track wars, rumors of wars to know that the end is near, all right? The mystery of iniquity was in existence in John's day, he said. And so Jesus tells you, he says, listen, this is going to be the norm all throughout the church age. You're going to see deception. You're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. You're going to see these things happening. Don't be troubled. If you want to know what the signs of the times are, they've always been here. You don't need to go to a website. We're in it. However, Jesus says the end is not yet. When is the end? Verse 7. Now, keep Revelation 6 open as I go through this. So Matthew 24, Revelation 6. And where does the end start? Nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Seal number one, what do we see? The rise of the Antichrist going forth to conquer. What do we see in seal number two? War. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Next, he says, after that will come famines. What do you see in seal number three? Famine. Food's expensive because of famine. Then you see next, after famine, you see pestilences. What do we see in seal number four? We see death, and I explained to you that it actually means the, the contagious disease, pestilences. It's the same thing. Seal number four is pestilences. What do we see in seal number six? The very next thing Jesus says, earthquakes in various places. You got a massive worldwide earthquake in seal number six. What does Jesus say? All these are the beginning of sorrows. What does Ezekiel say when he saw the scroll? He said he saw lamentation, mourning, and woe, sorrows. These are the beginning of sorrows. These are just the start of seals. This is not a way to track when the end is near. This is the end, the beginning of the end. Verse nine, 
Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then there shall be many offended, and shall many betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end shall be the same shall be saved. This is the same message that is preached all throughout Revelation to the tribulation believers. And what do we see in seal number five? Tribulation martyrs. Write what Jesus says here. What happens after the six seals? It says, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So what do we see after chapter six, the first six seals, before the seventh seal is opened? We see the 144,000 sealed, and then we see a massive revival, just like Jesus predicted. Matthew 24 is an outline, guys, a very clear outline of the great tribulation. It is not some type of thermometer for us to know when the end is near. The end is always near because Jesus can come at any moment. So, I don't have time to go into the rest of it because I'm out of time. But the point is, whether it's the 144,000 that do this or not, although I think it is, a massive revival occurs as a result. And Jesus predicted the same exact thing. The Bible is consistent. And so what we do know for sure is that they'll be protected and that the greatest revival that history has ever known occurs shortly thereafter. So you say, that's great, Pastor Will, but what does that mean for me this morning? <laughs> well, for those of us who are saved, since Jesus can come back at any moment, and this is the horrible things that are waiting for those who don't know him, we have no time to waste. We have no time to waste. We want to take as many people with us when the Lord returns, right? So no one will go through these horrors. You don't want your coworkers, you don't want your family members, you don't want your neighbors, you don't want any of these folks to go through this mess, right? So we have no time to waste. So as the worship team comes up, I want to leave you with 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 4. We read it in our scripture reading. I didn't read verse 4, but I want to read verse 4 as well here at the end. But Paul says in chapter 5, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, which is what we're learning about in Revelation, right? The judgment, the wrath of God. Knowing what's coming, Paul says, we persuade men, right? That's why we persuade men. We don't want them to go through that. We love them. He says, for the love of Christ constrains us. I don't want you to go through that. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be with the Lord. I want you to be with me. And so, he says, we have been given this ministry of reconciliation, of calling people to be reconciled to God. And so in verse 1 of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he says, we then, because we've been given this, as workers together with him, we beseech you also that you do not receive the grace of God in vain. He's talking to believers here. For he says, I have heard you in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We use those verses more often to call unbelievers to, like it's an altar call verse, right? You know, now's the day of salvation. Don't wait. You don't know if tomorrow's promised you. Get saved. That's good, but it's not in context. He's talking to believers here. What's he saying? Now is the day to share our faith. Now is the day to lead others to Christ. Now is the day to look for the Lord to help us in this ministry of reconciliation. And so Paul says, we need that help so that we would give no offense, verse 3, in anything so that the ministry would not be blamed. Think about that for a moment. 
I don't ever want to be a stumbling block as a Christian to someone else coming to Christ. And so he says, in all things, we approve ourselves as God's servants. In everything we do, we want to show that we are God's servants, that, that we're trying to build his kingdom, and that we're communicating that love that compels us to urge people to be reconciled to God. So what we need this morning, what I urge you this morning is the king is coming. Let's not receive God's grace in vain. Let's not be a stumbling block for someone to get saved, but let's be God's servants now in all we do and let's share our faith, amen? Let's all stand. Oh Lord, you are so good. You're so gracious to us. You're so patient with us. And, and Lord, we, we realize this, this is it. This is our call. This is our call. You said, go into all the world and make disciples. It's, it's, it's why we got saved. And Lord, I know how easy it is to get distracted and get busy building my own kingdom here and to forget, Lord, that I, 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 I laid that down so I could help build your kingdom. To live for something eternal and not something temporary. So Lord, you see all of us here. You know where we're at. You know if we've been distracted. You know if we've, we, we've kind of been doing our own thing. And, and we ask you right now to just fill us afresh with your spirit. We want to be bold witnesses for you. We want to have a love for, our, for those around us. We want to have a, a love, Lord, for, for even our, our enemy, Lord. We want to show that we're your servants. We don't want to be a stumbling block for people to come to Christ in any way. So will you pour out your spirit upon us? Will you help us, Lord? to be your witnesses. Even as the early church prayed and said, God, give us boldness, and you shook the building they were in. Lord, we pray that you would come upon us afresh and shake our lives. We love you, and we give ourselves to you to be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.